Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's hosts Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. Welcome to Season 18, Episode 11, powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. I'm Shane Malloy with Brad Allen from HockeyProspect.com. We're going to start off uh, the next two segments. We're going to talk about the 2023 NHL draft rankings uh, from HockeyProspect.com. That just came out on November 30th. Chat about some players that we did not talk about a couple of weeks prior. So right off the bat at number five, and this is just an early list, so everybody calm down. Uh, this is where you guys have Will Smith. So talk a little bit about Will Smith and what you you as the collective group have seen from him early on in this season. Yeah, well, I know it's early, but I wouldn't say that uh, he'll be one that's going to move too far down. He's, he's a pretty special prospect. Uh, one of the most talented players in this draft class and also one of the most deceptive players in this draft class. So when you look at him, he's a, he's a natural dual threat. Uh, what I mean by deception is that he uses exaggerated postural fakes, stick fakes, uh, shot fakes, passing fakes. He, he incorporates his footwork into his fakes. You name it, he does it. So uh, he makes a lot of advanced setup plays, and he, he's one of those players that uh, thinks the game two, three steps ahead of the opposition a lot of the time. That's what really the separating factor for, for Will Smith is. So when you, when you take his offensive game and you look at the potential upside as he starts to round out his, his defensive side, which is admittedly that's where when you, when you look at it from, from a perspective where he needs to develop and improve, it's definitely on the defensive side if he wants to, to remain at center at the pro level. But, you know, the, the, you can say that almost Lots every of young yeah. prospect, right? Yeah, 100%. Um, so, yeah, you know, every, every year usually there's one – specific player on the program that stands out right and and this year it's it's will smith you know it's uh it's not just because of his name it's because of his talent level too he's he's very talented i don't know if you had noticed this as well as i find him cunning as a player in terms of if he's coming down with the puck against defensemen he forces the defenseman to make the first move he almost like um tries to like it's the stare down and he's waiting for them to commit and then he counter then he counterattacks them from instead of him making the first move he likes to like make force the defenseman to do something to try to almost guess what his intentions are yeah you know it's a great point i, I always refer to it as the masashi offense right it's right. the masashi effect meaning always try to force a reaction first out of your out of the defense so that you can manipulate their base and readjust your lanes it's, uh, you know from an nhl perspective i think maybe the best example is panarin right now panarin's like the most deceptive player you can right. imagine because his toolkit is is fine, but it's not high high end for the NHL. So he has to be very reliant on being able to reconfigure lanes and manipulate defense and and get them to freeze. Right, where you want you want the defense or to at least lean to an air, a direction, right, and force or, them or put off them balance. In, put them in yeah. space where where you're going to take another direction. That's right. So that that is Will Smith's calling card. It's it's what allows him to compensate. The reason I bring up Panarin is because like Panarin, uh, I, his skating base is fine. It it will it will be uh pro average but it's not going to be high end he's not dynamic when it comes to the skating right he's not adam fentili when it comes to the skating base so for for smith it's incredibly important that the deception translates but we think it absolutely will and it's one of the reasons he's in our top six and look he's like 170 180 pounds 
right? So there's so much to grow there in terms of how much that Mihaisa might get an additional power in there as well. It's just, it's, there's a, we sometimes forget when they're 17 that when they're 23, their bodies could be radically different. So I'm curious to see how that continues to develop. Um, as well, let's chat, uh, chat about Zach Benson. And Zach, you have him at 13th overall currently on the list. Once again, calm down. It, it'll, it might change. It might not. Uh, thoughts on him as an overall player playing on a stacked team in Winnipeg? Yeah, so Zach stood out last year with Savoy, uh, you know, on his line and and with, uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but Arizona's first round pick, the, the gigantic center there that we had a ton, ton of time for. Um, but uh, the thing was, uh, Geeky, thank you, Connor Geeky. So for him to stand out with them in his minus one speaks volumes about this player. You know, I... I already know my black book quote for this kid, which is, you know, the movie title, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once, you know, that that's this kid, this, this player is everywhere. He's always on the puck. He's always around the puck. It takes zero time for you to notice him. Um, you know, at first glance, he can be a little deceptive in this, not, not in terms of a skill deception in terms of the fact as a scout, he has that, uh, a, a bit of a smaller build and he looks almost like a good, a good, uh, Euro player. If, if you will, right? Like he looks one of those players that's not destined for the NHL, but maybe for the for the NLA National League in Switzerland, the SHL or the KHL. But the more you watch, the more you realize that he's actually completely and utterly built for the NHL. He's uh, one of the most competitive players in the draft. I think his compete level is elite. Uh, he's incredibly intelligent, both on and off the puck. His spatial recognition, his anticipation, his ability to stay above the puck is second to none. And that's going to allow him to compensate for his size. The other issues or the other the other aspects of Benson's game that really stand out are, are the playmaking. The playmaking is incredibly consistent. I find in this draft, there's a lot of high-end or at least mid-range talent where the playmaking has been very inconsistent, like Alex Sierranek, Nate, Nate Danielson, uh, et cetera. But with, with the case of Benson, it is polar opposite. He is consistently making very high-end technical passes, uh, and that's going to really help his game translate because I think that will be the bread and butter in his game because the shot off the rush is the weakness. He's not a bad shooter, but he's, I call him the inverse Atkinson. You know, he's basically Cam Atkinson, but he's a primary playmaker, not a primary shooter. Thoughts on off the puck, because he's constantly around the puck, and I think he has good puck support. You know, he's constantly dogging. Is that his defensive, I guess, um, advantage potentially in the NHL, as you could you could say it, is that he'll be able to dog pucks and force players to make plays who have the puck more quickly because he's going to be on their hip, constantly dogging them and allowing defense to stand up, be that type of defender. Um, could you see that in his repertoire as he moves forward? I already do. Uh, he's one of the best takeaway specialists in this draft class already in our sample. Uh, he reminds me um, uh, defensively of uh, Adam Sakura, who was a third round pick from the right. New York Rangers uh, last season. One of my favorite players in the draft in terms of defensive ability as a winger. Uh, second and none in terms of potential penalty kill specialist type of game. Uh, Zach Benson has some of those same qualities. You know, the, the, the two limiting factors that I know if an NHL scout was sitting right next to us, he would say is shot off the rush, which I totally agree with. And the other might be skating base. Uh, I think mechanically his base is actually very good, very well-rounded. The power for his size isn't ideal. You wish it was a little higher end, a little more fast, which represented at this 
at this time. But I, I, with his work rate on the ice, that usually generalizes and translates off the ice, which means if you get him in the gym enough, you get another level of peak power output when it comes to his linear north-south skating, he'll be fine. Won't be, it won't be a concern. Let's get your thoughts on Axel sending Palika, and you guys have him at number twenty-two currently on your November list, and at five eleven, one hundred and eighty pounds, right-handed D-man. Understand the value of right having right-handed D-man; they're hard to find. Thoughts on his progression this year, and I'm always intrigued when you get you know at least a handful of games from a player at this age at the Swedish Elite League because. You know, you're you're thrown into the big end of the pool quickly. And yes, you can look at what he does with the puck, but I'm always interested to see how he defends against bigger, stronger, faster, um, particularly when they recognize that he's a smaller, younger player and they try to take advantage of him. How does he react to that? I'm interested in his reactions to those situations. Well, it's a great question and a great point because uh, there was this was one of the most heated players in terms of trying to figure out the real ranking form. I currently have him as an A-rated player. Uh, Mark does not. He has him B-rated, and that's where he has him at 22. I am higher than this uh, by a considerable margin. Uh, and that it really depends on how you evaluate his defense moving forward. Uh, I'm more comfortable than than Mark is with his uh, defensive ability right now. Uh, he played up. He's in Shalafia's system, uh, which is the same system um, that um, – uh, What's his name? I'm missing my name today, Shane. Uh, the <laughs> Winnipeg second round pick, Elias Almanson. That's right. Elias Almanson. Uh, so same system. Uh, and like Elias Almanson, uh, his skating base is superb, right? This is an exceptional skater. This is also an exceptional puck handler. And this is an exceptional shooter. So there, there is an excellent foundation there to mold. When it comes to offensive defensemen, this is one. You're always looking at the zero-sum effect on the other side of the puck, right? Can they Can they maintain... Uh, their defense adequately enough to remain relevant offensively and be used as a power play weapon, right? And, and that's really the great debate right now in terms of how many of these smaller players are going to translate because he is about 5'11", 180 pounds, not a big kid. So the first thing as a scout, what you do when you see a player of this size is you say, okay, how explosive and athletic is he? How much can he compensate with his power generation so that he can hold uh, defensively when it comes to boxing out a player and pushing and shoving on them? And then likewise, you're looking at their static body strength. Right? You're looking at their ability to hold off a rush. I have found personally that I think already he's completely fine in that regard. Do I wish he was matched the play, the urgency of the play a little more occasionally? Do I wish he was slightly more tenacious? Yes. Yes, I do. But I think it's part fine. of that could be the, the environment he's in too, as well. I mean, it... yeah, yeah, of course. When, when it comes to, you know, Shalefti's uh, system, you know, are they the heaviest set teams in terms of uh, uh, generating a defensive style of game? No. So, yeah, maybe it has to do with systems as well. Um, but either way, I think it will hold well enough for him to be a considered, consideration as a top four defenseman. And one thing about this draft that I mentioned previously, I'll say again here, this is the worst draft I can ever remember for defensemen. I don't remember a class this bad. This, this is, so if you want a defenseman, if you need, if it's a positional need and any show team is looking for a defenseman, they're going to have to move up here to grab one. Because once one goes, it's going to be a domino. You're going to lose the top two, three guys, and then, it's, then you're, you're dealing with very little remaining. So I, I think there's a very good chance this player gets drafted very high, despite maybe not, you know, not being a normal consideration for a top 10, 12 player. I think he might be in this draft. That's how, that's how weak this class is defensively. 
curious to see how that sort of plays out over the next, you know, six to seven months in that respect, because it is now uh, beginning of December. So we're going to see. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Brad and I are continuing to talk about HockeyProspect.com's November 30th ranking for the 2023 NHL Draft. Uh, next, we're going to talk about Michael Hrabel, a goaltender. Uh, he's a Czech goaltender, but he's playing in Omaha in the USHL. 6'6", over 200 pounds already as a 17-year-old. I don't know what they feed this kid, but he's a monster you're the goalie guy for us, so let's talk about him and what you see and and like thoughts about having him at 14 at this stage. Yeah, so this this is not one of those unknown goalies who came out of nowhere right. and doing the yeah. no. This this was a known goalie. This was the goalie for a couple of years that has accelerated his development. Uh, he's dominant in U20 uh, Czechoslovakia last year, Czechia last year, and. Um, U17s, he was, he was decent there as well. It comes over the Linka. He was mixed with the Linka. So, so one, of the large, one of the things that's the most important to monitor when it comes to these larger goalies at this age is seeing how fluid they are within their skating movements. Right? It's all about their micro-shuffling. It's all about their ability to readjust and recover on plays. And when the larger you are and, and the younger you are, the, obviously the, usually the harder it is for a player to uh, uh, get accustomed. Now, when you put them on the small ice for the first time in Omaha's system in the USHL, that's where we get to really find out exactly where his development stands. And well, I found out pretty early that he was doing just a okay. He's, he's uh, to be honest with you, it's, it's development. Usually with these bigger goalies, you're looking to give them a lot of time, right? The development in any, with any player is nonlinear with goalies. It's, it's beyond nonlinear, right? So when you're looking at a large young goalie, you give him time. He doesn't need it. He was very, very dominant early for Omaha, and he's never let up. He's, he's looked extremely good. He's cleaned up a lot of his technical issues that I had. When, when he was coming into this season, he was raw. There was a lot of – there was a raw, raw projection. When it comes to a raw projection, you think I think the last one where it was as raw as this would be – Matt Sogard coming in from 16 right. to 17. Right, yeah. Uh, Rabel has – Yes, from Messiah Tigers, Ottawa's second round pick in 2019. Uh, when, when you look at Rabble, I think Rabble's ahead. I think Rabble has shown a lot of nuances technically in terms of being able to seal himself while moving laterally at a better rate than I expected. And the big thing with him is he blends incredible athleticism with poise. He's a very, very controlled and poised goalie mentally. You know, when, when he lets in a weaker soft goal, he'll bounce right back. When he's getting pepper with shots on net, he stays calm. He stays composed. He, he stays in the game. He's, he's, it's very hard to disrupt him. Uh, that's an incredibly important aspect of goaltending, as I'm sure a lot of you know. So uh, when it comes to Rabel, uh, he's honestly a no-brainer for the top 15 right now. If he keeps this up and if he continues to develop mechanically in certain areas in terms of his post-integration, in terms of little technical aspects we won't get to today, then I could see him actually moving up a little bit. That's that's how good he's been and how dominant he looks. And in terms of his projection, if somebody was like, hey, what's he look like at, at the NHL level? I, I would say he's going to look at a combination of uh, Jakob Markstrom and Eric Pertillo. Uh, Eric Pertillo was a, a goalie I had in 2018 ranked in my top five 
coming out of J18. He was drafted the next year by Buffalo. So that would be my comparable, be a, a hybrid between the two of them. Thoughts on when you're projecting him moving forward, knowing that he's going to play another year in the USHL and then he's going to UMass in 2025. So he has another year of junior under his belt and then potentially two of college, right? To sort of push him to that 20, maybe 21, you know, maybe he goes, maybe does three years in college. So that just gives you that longer runway if you need it, right? He's not in a position where he's junior, so he has to come out as a 20. Does that impact where you project him because of that developmental pathway for him? Yeah, it, it does affect it. it it's, a good, it's a good question. I think college goaltending development route is the best there is. I, I think, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I think teams rush goalies when they're allowed to get them into the pro leagues faster, and it, it, can, it can directly affect them. You know, I, I think Spencer Knight uh, was moved ahead by a year. I think Carter Hart was moved ahead a little too quick. Uh, don't get me wrong, I still love both goalies. I think, you know, they're they're developing, but I think it would have been even smoother if they were given a little bit extra time. I think Thatcher Demko, right? right. I think Thatcher Demko is a good, a good example of the timeline you want to usually give a goalie, and that's through a college route. Uh, I honestly think that CHL development with goalies is dangerous. It's one of the reasons that when it comes to the CHL specifically, uh, I usually, even if I'm really high on a goalie with this year, there's a couple of them I actually really like. Uh, we have one ranked there uh, in, we won't talk about today, but out of the WHL, but yeah, it's, it's cause for concern. I much prefer a goalie getting extra time to develop. Uh, let's talk about Alexander Rykoff. Uh, thoughts on him as well. You have him at 17. So Alex Rykov comes out of the same program as Vitaly Kravtsov over in Russian tractor system. Right. Uh, like Vitaly Kravtsov, he's accelerated his development and essentially skipped the MHL in his draft here. Um, so he's one of the older players in the draft, just like Kravtsov was, uh, and he's moved into the VHL and he looks extremely good in the VHL here as a 17-year-old. Um, actually, I think Kravtsov is older than him by a considerable margin. You know, I'm wrong. I, off the top of my head, Kravtsov was, I think, four or five months younger than Rykov. Rykov's a February birthday, if I, if I remember correctly. Uh, so what Rykov's doing in the VHL as a 17-year-old is nothing short of astonishing in some of his performances. Uh, I've watched him against some of the top teams. He had one of the best games of the year for me. Uh, which is great, but also a little concerning because I don't want to place that one game too highly, right? You need you need a big sample. You need to you need to weight uh, uh, games accurately. Uh, but he was he's an incredibly well-rounded player. He's very athletic. He has an excellent skating base. Uh, he's a 200-foot player who can do basically everything. He makes your team better. I think he's a primary playmaker. Uh, as opposed to a shooter, but he can shoot the puck too. Decent shot. Decent shot. Um, I think he's one of the highest floor players in the draft. And uh, for my money, I think this draft is incredibly top heavy and then falls off a cliff dramatically after about top 16. Uh, so when, when you look at the top 16, if you can grab him in there, I think, again, extremely high floor player, almost guaranteed to play if he's willing to come over and be comfortable uh, in North America, then you, you take him. I, I have him ranked uh, slightly above where we have him ranked uh, on, our, on our main list there. Uh, I have him as an A-rated player. I think, I think he's incredibly, incredibly well-rounded and almost a surefire player to play. I'm very interested to get your thoughts on Matthew Wood, who you guys have currently at number 24. He's at the University of Connecticut and obviously a big strapping body at 6'3", you know, 200 pounds, right-handed shot. My thoughts are when you're projecting him moving forward, because he only played one year in the BCHL, the other year was cut off by COVID and only got about 18 games in. 
and this is his freshman year at Connecticut, is he a player that does your rank, would your rankings change if you knew that he was only going to play a couple, like two seasons? Or would it change if you thought you knew he was going to play three? Because I think he's a player that needs to play three years in college. I would agree three years in college, I think, is the best route for him. Uh, this is so the reason I wanted to bring up this player now is because this player is the nightmare uh, of the scouting world. Right? <laughs> this is this is this is the hardest type of player to get a projection and a read on when you try to evaluate what he will actually look like five years from now. He is, I call this the Jason Robertson of this class, right? Uh, you know, I had Jason Robertson 15 on my on my list in 2017. And I know, I, I know some of you might be like, oh, you're just trying to look good. Or it's the opposite. I had him wrong. <laughs> 15 was way too low, way, way too low. Right. So, and I thought I did a better job than some of projecting him, right? Because so many people said too many variables you got to take into consideration with his incredibly under what, like the worst skating base frame combination you could imagine. Right. But Jason Robertson, to his credit, was a kid who understood his limitations and put in work in the gym. And Dallas has done a phenomenal job developing him the right way and getting him structurally, getting him the foundation structurally. He needed to take off and explode and become the power forward that uh, theoretically he could be with his talent. The same will be applied to Matthew Wood. Matthew Wood's entire career is going to be based off the idea that he can live in a gym. This is a player with the worst skating base in the draft relative to his talent level. You know, he's one of the only, I, we have a three to nine uh, rating system based off the Jets uh, old scale. Uh, he, I would give him a flat three in terms of a skating foundation. It's worse than Luca Del Belbeluz's, which I consider to be the worst linear skater last year. Del Belbeluz beats him out everywhere else in terms of edge work, pivoting base, manipulating ability off center line. Uh, that said, you have a kid who's physically underdeveloped. He's, his coordination is not fully developed. His skate, he's a terrible skater, and look what he's done. He has, he's, he's producing in college. He was absolutely de decimating the BCHL in his minus one, and there's a tremendous amount of upside. Now, this is a gifted playmaker. He's huge. He has range. He understands uh, the nuances of the game in terms of how to counteract some of his deficiencies, which is huge when it comes to evaluating if a player can translate. you got to see that he knows his limitation and work around it. What I mean by that is, say, theoretically, that he, he's working off a draw and he needs to get into a space. Well, he's going to be too slow to be able to beat the coverage. However, what he does instead is use his frame, lean on the coverage, then counteract and wait for the precise moment for the defenseman to attempt to manipulate him, push him off balance, and then he'll rotate off of that, right? So he does the small things that you need to do, that you need to see to be able to hang and translate despite having these limitations. That's where it makes it even more difficult, right? Because now he's doing things you want him to do, but then he has that toolkit. So it's, it's, this is the player that you have to take the most variables into account within determining his projection as a player. Uh, I think he will be all over the, the, when you, if, if I had five NHL team lists right now, I'm willing to bet one has him top five, another has him 40. That's just the nature of the game. That's what this is. Yeah, and it's, it's in discussions we've had with Pat Malloy in the past about skating the game and not necessarily being a great skater, but understanding what you need, how, how to skate the game. Um, I've seen, I defended a lot, of, a lot of receivers who were super fast, but didn't, couldn't run a route to save their lives and they couldn't didn't know when to slow up and drop into like a zone coverage like so that's part of that as well that's why i find it i can relate those two things together when i'm watching somebody skate or i'm watching somebody run a route so fascinating to watch this player continue to develop um 
he may be along. Like I, I agree with you. We both may watch him the most out of any player in this draft class, just out of curiosity to see if we can figure out the puzzle piece that he is. So we're going to take a short break on hockey prospect radio. We'll be back right after these important messages. Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back empowered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're once again in our player development segment with Pat Malloy. Pat, thanks for coming on the show again. We always appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, this week's topic is 10 lessons learned over two decades in player development. So we're going to spread this over a couple segments, Pat. Um, Let's see if we can get through five in this in this segment. I honestly I didn't want to ask you what they were because I was just curious to what really <laughs> the, the first five were. And sort of like we're just gonna play off it and go from there because I'd rather hear it like right from the cuff and not really know what I'm getting into. And so I'm just intrigued. So right off the top, you can start. It doesn't have to be the most important one, but you know, start with one and let's go from there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess for the first thing is 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 have a plan and, and be prepared to adapt it. And so evidence based is something that that I've found over the years is is critical, you know, to building a player's plan, um, whether it's your yearly, your monthly, a weekly. But most importantly, you know, the plan is simply a, a blueprint of places that you want to go with things based on evidence from gameplay based on evidence from, you know, their physical makeup, um, from their, from their processing, uh, from their technical skills and how they tactically use them. But most importantly, you know, it's, it's about earning the right to advance in, in, in terms of those concepts um, and not trying to check boxes, you know, players will earn the right to advance as uptake occurs. And, you know, from a foundational perspective, I've, I've mentioned this in past segments, you know, one of the things that some of the best players in the world that I've been blessed to work with have is just incredible foundation um, of, of foundational skills of their fundamentals. And, you know, most importantly, earning the right to advance as a player ensures that the uptake occurred and allows them to be able to use those things um, fluidly or unconsciously, uh, which might be the best way to put it. Um, and, and not just from a, a checkbox perspective, if that makes sense. The second thing would, would certainly be, you know, don't fear failure, learn from it. it. It, the feedback that comes from failure to execute is something that's so, so valuable. And, and there's no better feedback, specifically game feedback um, than failure. And so if, if trying the right way, you know, the idea is to grow from failure because it's the most immediate feedback to your, your technical skill or aptitude and your tactical execution that is, is probably the most powerful feedback you can, can receive. And then reward process and outcomes will, will follow. And so really when you get into a holistic approach to, you know, how you're developing your athlete, making sure that they recognize what works and what doesn't and empowering that, that feedback loop um, so that you can make the conscious changes in order to impact the, you know, the outcome that you're looking for. And that comes from that process for sure. Pat, when when you devised uh, the the foundation of of how you wanted to develop players, have you ever ran into a player or two or an anomaly that that's made you take a step back and, and made you want to 
continue adding to that foundation? Is there any, for instance, from a scouting perspective, you know, you, you, have, you have fundamental attributes of hockey sense, skating, uh, competitiveness, the toolkit. Uh, but uh, there's one thing that I've added to that really, which is, is the, the overall uh, uh, pulse of a player. And I guess you could label that through compete, but I, I, I'd like to give it my own uh, category now. Uh, is there anything like that for you, categorically speaking, you've had to add and then put it uh, through your, your 10 tenants here? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Everyone kind of, each player seems to have their go-to attribute that really makes them special or, or unique to themselves. Um, you know, I'll think of a player like Eric Carlson's an interesting example. You know, his sense and his ability to to see the game at a different level really challenges me to think, how much more can we empower that and, and you know, leverage that strength? Um, obviously, skating was a separator for him. But I always viewed that as kind of a conduit to his hockey sense, the way that his mind could process, you know, then his elite level mobility, especially in the early stages of, of his career where no one had really seen anything like that was, you know, a challenge for me um, to try to say, all right, can we expedite more opportunity to, to leverage the strength of his sense? Another example is I think of a player like Claude Giroux, just a really ultimately competitive player. And so what ways can you leverage that competitiveness um, to move along? Because that's one of the fundamental strengths of, of him as a person and as a player is just I, I don't know that I've been around someone recently that's as competitive in each and every setting. And how do you weaponize that? And so for sure, that that's something that in terms of that process makes you question in terms of their individual plan. Um, you know, that we touched on, on, on point one is, is, you know, how can we create that as a, a level of strength and then leverage it against the rest? And how does it become even more of a foundational piece knowing that, you know, because it is what it is today, is there more there? And that's always a question I find myself asking. Sort of the, the third point that, that I touch on is, is putting players first. It's, it's about them and it's, it's not about, you know, you as a coach, um, player growth for me outweighs wins and losses in the end because it contributes directly to. And so, you know, as a coach, you're there to serve and you're there to help with discovery and, and guide that discovery. And, you know, one of the things that, that I think I, I took away early in it is that, you know, teaching ways that an athlete learns, there's no one size fits all um, to the way someone learns. And if, if I'm coaching in a way that makes perfect sense to me, that doesn't necessarily mean that anything I'm conveying is getting through to an athlete in a digestible way. So um, that's one of the biggest things that, that, you know, it's got to be player centric for sure. And I want to make the rink a fun place to be, obviously, you know, in the off season, that's, that's an easier thing to do. But even in, in my travels as, as part of an NHL club, um, you know, on development visits and, and, you know, I'm not the head coach. And so what I'm trying to do is create a better version of the player for themselves, because the, the better a player is that, you know, the better the ingredients, the better the team has an opportunity to perform. And so I've got to make that a fun experience. I don't want to dwell on negatives or dwell on things that they don't do well, that might be developmental areas. Um, it's about, you know, creating discovery by the player to recognize, Hey, this is, you know, this is an intriguing thing that will help me, but ultimately it also helps the team and the organization, you know, the better your people perform, the better, you know, everything goes for everyone. So um, that was a big standout for me. You know, number four, pursuing excellence every day. Um, something I, I think that, you know, 
especially the caliber of player I've been fortunate enough to work with, the idea of, of better is possible, good is not enough. And, and I, I find the, the, the highest end players, the sort of the most special players, the ones that are always seeking that edge. Um, they're always trying to find ways. They're not complacent in their approach. They're always looking for ways to sharpen that edge just 1%. Um, and, and, you know, become a student of, of a, your game. I don't say the game that that's obviously important, but becoming, you know, intrinsically aware of the things that you do that you succeed with intrinsically aware of the, you know, the things that are limited in your ability and then finding a pathway to, you know, to try to create less, um, situations where you find your skill set or your ability to perform at a detriment. Um, and, and that's something that's really you know, stood out for me over the years. And I think the fifth one, and, and to sort of wrap the first five is, you know, players learn from playing. They learn from the game. The game is the best teacher and consequence free time is important. And, you know, in the off season, when you've got development time, that's a really easy situation. Um, but during the season, when you're trying to improve or implement concepts in a player that allow them to execute within a game, you know, I, I've, I've heard and I, I recognize and I agree with, you know, the, the National Hockey League in, in its nature is not a development league. Uh, it's the top league in the world. But that doesn't mean that development can't occur um, in, in that industry during the season with games and things that, that are going on in such a rapid pace. It's important that we recognize the game is the best teacher, empowering players to recognize, you know, and, and I talked a lot about in this segment and the previous segments, the idea of guided discovery while encouraging creativity, you know, giving them concepts of the where, when, why, how, but ultimately it's creating an environment where the player becomes self-guided and that consequence free nature allows for that feedback loop to kick in. This works, this doesn't this level of risk is tolerable based on my skill set and allows me to perform at X versus, you know, this risk doesn't, you know, isn't conducive with, with a gameplay outcome that we find acceptable, uh, both from a, a coach and or a player's perspective. And so, you know, creating environments that are chaotic, creating environments that are, um, you know, here are some strategies, but ultimately you want your athlete to find the solutions and, and have a skill-based solution to the problems that occur in games and, and that consequence free time and that ability to learn from the game is vital. Pat, interesting through the first five that you had mentioned and what jumps out to me is, well, number one is make the plan, but the flexible, like existential flexible plan, understanding there's a strategy and inside that strategy are tactics, but it has to be malleable and you can't get caught within your own biases as the teacher from that perspective. 100%. 100%. And I think that the development world is, is an interesting one, right? I mean, for, for me to create um, an athlete to be something other than the best version of themselves. And so listen, we can learn from the greats. We can learn from best practices or conceptual things that work with, with various players but what works for one may not work for another. And there's a gamut of reasons, both mental, physical, you know, the bandwidth perspective in terms of, of how processing occurs, the physical perspective about I'm just wired and built to be a faster athlete than the guy beside me, for instance. Um, so it's, it's really understanding how do we create the best version of that player um, 
And, and I know we've touched on that in the past for sure. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio, but we'll be back right after these messages. Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back empowered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're continuing talking about player development and Pat's 10 lessons learned over the past two decades. So we went through one through five. So Pat, start us off at number six. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, first five leading us sort of into six. And again, in no particular order, but if you're the smartest person in the room, find a new room, um, both from a player and a coaching perspective, you know, in my experience, seeking new knowledge and challenging yourself. And I, I, I put that upon the players as well. And that um, honing your craft and recognizing new pathways to performance is something that, that I think is a, an admirable trait amongst a player. And I think a critical one um, for a coach, you know, get uncomfortable as often as you can. And really, there are no bad questions um, in terms of feedback loop. And, and, you know, when I build a relationship with a player, it's it's really making sure, you know, the quality of their questions tell me the quality of their uptake and their understanding. And so there are no bad questions. Um, I never want to have it in a situation where a player feels as though they can't ask that question because they're worried about the validity of it or, or my perception of it. I want that communication loop to be. Um, free-flowing and allow the player the comfort level to, to ask those questions. You know, number seven for me, steps skip building foundations are hard to repair down the road and don't skip steps. Um, and really the idea there in the, in the technical development of, for tactical execution. And this kind of talks to the idea, especially with younger players, is, is really ensuring that the steps are in place in, in, in an athlete's age and window of learnability so that they can maximize their ability to perform those things. Ultimately earn the right to advance um, and, and players will group themselves. They'll, you know, every player will earn the right to advance and they'll advance at the pace that they're able to um, uptake the information, the skill set, the motor movement, the processing, etc. And, you know, ultimately we want them to leave better for their experience it's got to be an experience that becomes an enriching one. And from a coaching perspective, I want them to leave their time with me better for that, you know, that interaction and that experience. Have you ever had a situation where you felt you have accelerated a kid's development too quickly? And if you did, what were the, what were the the symptoms of, of his play that allowed you to be aware of it? And then what tenants did you use and put into place to fix it? You know, I think a lot of times, especially at a young age, you'll see a player that can really skate and they skate really well in straight lines. So maybe they have a physical maturity about them um, where they can just win races physically. And, and then all of a sudden we hit a bit of a wall where they recognize, wait a second, I used to be able to skate right around someone and now I'm unable to do that. And so really it becomes application based in that point and, and teaching them new ways, teaching them to skate the game versus to just skate. And so, you know, example of that, seeing a player that at the junior level really excels really well because they could get away with just moving better in straight lines faster than another player. 
because they were you know gifted in their physical ability to move in, in A to B type skating. And then showing them, well, now you've hit a level where, or you've hit a, a level of achievement where um, you're not getting clean entries, for instance, you're running into a, you know, a defender that can match pace with you. And so then recognizing, you know, uh, how do I access the offensive zone or, or space acquisition routes or how I use my skating to blend and create new space and backing that up with video and showing them gameplay, but then getting them sort of into the concept that the things I do create a reaction, a reactionary movement. If there is no reaction, that is the reaction. Um, and, and those sorts of things are things I've found really successful at tying what was a strength. You know, you, it's the idea. I'll talk a lot to an athlete and say, you know, if I take a magnifying glass and I hold it up to the sun and I extend my arm up, all you'll see is a distortion of colors in the air and it kind of creates a rainbow effect. But if I take that same magnifying glass and I, and I focus it down on a piece of wood and I concentrate the light from the sun, we start to see smoke and eventually we start to see fire. And so sometimes it's just reframing or fine tuning the focus of a certain thing. And, and it opens up that new pathway for a player. So uh, number eight, go ahead. No, sorry. I was just going to like ask you about number eight. Yeah. Number eight is, is just having the courage to do it right. Um, outside noise is just that it's noise. And so it's better to be respected than liked both as a player and as a coach and, and, you know, make your intentions known. Um, it's not about where you are at 16 or 18 when you're trying to reach your trajectory as a player. It, it's really ensuring that, you know, your mission guided in that we've broken down all of the things that will help to make you successful based on your makeup as an athlete, um, uh, with your intellect to the game, with your coachability, um, with your learnability. Um, and having the courage to do it the right way and fight that outside noise that, you know, limits your ability to hit your trajectory. Number nine, I go back to that, that feedback loop, just no bad questions, the seeking of knowledge and, and don't let ego get in the way when you do seek that knowledge. Sometimes you're going to hear things you don't like to hear. Um, but understanding that, you know, don't assume anything, including that you're wrong or you're right and use the resources available to you. You know, at the end of the day, the place and the game, the place that the game is in right now is, is, is maybe better than it's ever been in terms of the ability to access the right information, the right type of people to support you on your journey as a player um, and, and use those resources because if they're available and you choose not to use them, that, that, you know, that's on the player at that point. It's, it's important. And you see within every NHL organization, you know, there's a level of resource available, some more than others, you know, use the resources that are available to you. Question before you get to 10, then on that, because we have this massive access to information that we never had 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, for that matter, sometimes even five, do you find as a teacher in that situation that sometimes it's sensory overload. There's just so much coming at a player that you have to be able to simplify the amount of data that's coming into their brain at any given time. hundred percent. And I think that's the, the crucial part of player development is you're taking in all the information from the various, you know, points of, of, um, contact from the various points of, of information that are available to you in the department and for your players, but then the messaging and, and the way that it's delivered 
in, in digestible ways might be the most crucial because we can have the right combination um, to the safe, but if it's input improperly, you're not getting in. And so, you know, it's so vital that how it's communicated uh, in the way that a player learns most specifically in ways that it can be, uh, you know, uptaken the most quickly and maybe quickly is the wrong word, but the most effectively um, ultimately becomes the difference between, you know, tried and did, if that makes sense. Certainly. And number 10, I mean, at this a long time, you start to recognize the game owes you nothing. And it's, it's really about being about something greater than yourself. And so for a coach, that's, you know, it's, it's about being part of a player's journey and helping them succeed. And, and ultimately in their success, a team has the ability and an organization has the ability to succeed, you know, from a player's perspective, you know, that journey of the game owes you nothing. It doesn't matter whether you're a first round pick or you're a seventh round pick. Um, the game owes you nothing. And it's the things you do um, to get to that spot to be an effective player that make the difference. And so respecting the game and it will respect you. Recognize that, you know, there's a lot of hockey players in the world. And what are the things that you can leverage and strengths to make, you know, you the option versus someone else? Exactly. Most importantly, in Enjoy and cherish every minute of it because before you know it, you know, it, it's gone. Is that from your mindset, it's just purpose driven from, from everything you do. And that sort of binds the, you know, the other lessons that you had together. That's ends up being the focal point and something that you end up having to remind your students. And then that helps remind you because you can sometimes as the teacher get off track. Yeah. You know, knowing your why. And, you know, I guess the final point is, is try to leave the game better than when you started. And, you know, when we all started playing and, and for a player in the National Hockey League that's maybe reached the pinnacle, um, you started the game with a passion and a desire to get better. And I think everyone will admit, you know, being successful at something is certainly more fun than, than fighting for it. Um, leave the game better than when you started, you know. If there's, you know, there's, there's, there's ability to improve. Um, if you've got the chance to improve, use those resources, but ultimately, you know, the game is bigger than all of us and find your way within it and, and try to leave it in a better place than when you started. Well, like on that note, um, you know, I'd like to make a note of the four Brandon Wheat Kings players in in Calder Anderson and Nolan Ritchie and Ben Thornton and, and, Jake Chase on who helped that gentleman just to go and talk to him who was sitting on the bridge and maybe contemplating something different for his life. And then I think sometimes in hockey, we, you know, in the lat, you know, deservedly so in, in many cases, the, you know, the culture has come under fire. Um, and then sometimes we don't appreciate all the good things that are in the hockey culture. And I think for both, all four of those players in Brandon um, reminded us, that there's some really great things in the hockey community and hockey culture. And we need to celebrate and embrace that too, because it's not always doom and gloom. We got things that we got to work on. And, um, you know, hopefully some of the lessons that Pat, that you um, provided us, well, you know, we can apply to other things as well. And want to thank you again for coming on our show. We always appreciate your insight. Always, uh, always a pleasure. And uh, anytime it's, uh, it's always fun being able to share some of the things over, you know, a long, long time in this game and uh, always appreciate the opportunity to talk hockey with you guys.
We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We'll be back right after this. Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM, NHL Network Radio. Now, here's your hosts, Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We're back in powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're now going to talk about the Chicago Blackhawks prospects with Mike Donahue, the Director of Amateur Scouting. Mike, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to it. Well, it's uh, we didn't get a chance to talk to you guys very much after the draft, um, especially after the first round. It was actually super busy. Generally, you get a little bit of leeway to like have a chat before everybody runs off uh, before day two. So I really want to get your thoughts on Kevin Korczynski, who you guys took seventh overall. And it's it's interesting. And we had a, a chat off offline before the show started about looking at a player and his playing style and, you know, Kevin obviously being an offensive defenseman and then looking into, into the NHL and seeing that how few true offensive defensemen there are and how rare that is. And that can up the value of having a player like that. And in many cases, he was pretty raw. I'm um, still under like, even though tall, tall, but quite lanky yeah. and yeah. you sort of envisioning him, Mike, um, as a 22, 23-year-old, talk about that process of watching him develop um, in going into the draft, in his draft year, but then what he's done so far this year. And this year, he's just picked up where he left off and exploded offensively. Yeah, well, well he's come a long way. And, and you and I, in our couple texts that we've exchanged, we, we touched on it a little bit. Um, you know, he is the summer birthday. He was, he was a week. Last year, probably about this time when, when NHL Central Scouting came out with their initial ratings, he was a B player. And he just continued to climb the charts with opportunity. I think when you went in and watched Kevin, the, the skating, the body length, um, the confidence he has in handling the pucks, I think those stuck out right away. And then I think when the more you watched and you envisioned when he gets to 190, when he gets to 200 pounds and he still has that skating stride um, that he could go through the roof. It was, it was difficult for us because Seattle had the long run in the WHL playoffs. So Kevin wasn't able to attend the NHL combine. So we didn't have the testing results. We didn't have the ability to meet him in that platform in Buffalo. So we had, a you know, held a zoom call. And uh, you know, one of the things that sticks out about him is he's a rink rat. And he's going to do everything it is takes to get better. He he's the guy in the room that comes up with all the nicknames for the guys. As we're having the conversation, he's talking about Shapes being Reed Schaefer and Gusty being Gustus. And I don't know any of these players other than the name, but he just he has such a passion for hockey and a passion to get better. Uh, just all the pieces when it came together, it was uh, very thankful we got him. Mike, in his draft season, you know, we, we mentioned just now how he was a bit raw, but the, the skating base would come around. What, one issue I had with him last year was when it came to uh, being able to intercept pucks in the defensive uh, zone and be able to uh, honestly just get low enough. You know, sometimes he, he keeps and maintains a high posture when he's in his backward skating uh, mm -hmm. uh, stance. And, and sometimes I felt that it actually limited him to be able to get low enough the ice to take away some of these passes. So my question for you is, do you feel that with his newfound strength, has he started to uh, become a little more efficient when it comes to maintaining a lower, a lower uh, uh, depth in his stride so that he can get to these pucks in the defensive zone? Because 
for me, he's, he's not really a multi-dimensional defender in the sense he's not a physical defender. He's going to have to rely on his hockey sense and his stick positioning. So that was one area we, we weighted heavily as a result of that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he, he you know, physicality and a big brawny defenseman are words that go with Kevin Kochanski, but the brain and the reads that he makes defensively and part of Kevin's defensive game is he has the puck so much so he doesn't really have to play in his own zone. He gets it. He stick checks it. He gets possession of the puck. He gets it right up ice. Um, I think he did well in our development camp. Now, mind you, in our development camp, we had the likes of Mark Eaton there who played in the NHL. We had the likes of Brian Campbell who played in the NHL. Luke Richardson, who was a defenseman in the NHL, was there. We had just hired Kevin Dean, who was uh, played in the NHL and was worked with the defenseman Charlie McAvoy and Brandon Carlo and Matt Grizzlick in Boston. So Kevin um, did a lot of this stuff. They, they run a great program in Seattle, but a lot, Kevin got to this point just based on his ability. Now, when he gets with these hockey minds and they're telling him, okay, if you have a lower center of gravity, you can pivot quicker, you can engage quicker, you can get back for pucks quicker. Kevin has the hockey IQ and the brain to process um, what those people are telling him and everything from, from development camp to rookie camp against Minnesota versus, I don't know if he did, he, if he played all five preseason games, I'm not sure, but he was able to take all the information that these people were telling him and incorporate it into his game. And he's since, since done that going back to Seattle where I saw him in late October. And again, he's, I see what you mean with the, with his crouch. He is a little bit lower in his back at stance now. So he can pivot left, left or right leading with his stick. Um, so again, he's, I think the people that we've been able to support him with around him, um, he's really taken it, their information and been able to, to put it on the ice. Next player we want to ask you about it is Frank Nazar. Uh, unfortunately, he, you know, he's injured, so we haven't got a chance to see him play this year for University of Michigan. Talk about that process of evaluating him uh, in uh, the U.S. National Development Program and, you know, the U18s and, and how that what you really liked about his game, what you thought was projectable to the NHL and sort of a timeline. Cause you know, the player generally takes care of him, takes care of that himself in terms of when he's going to make that jump, but thoughts on him overall as well. Well, the, the process was a fairly easy one. Um, you know, we've, we've got good Intel from our scouts, especially with that team with some history, with some guys who have played with each other um, and have been able to maintain relationships. And that team is probably one of the most, scouted teams in the world on a yearly basis. And sometimes you're overvaluing them because of where they play. And some of the guys down the lineup, you're undervaluing them because they don't get uh, the limelight that the top guys get. And for Frank, there was a little bit of that because, you know, you had Logan Cooley there that went third overall. You had Carter Gauthier that went fifth overall. So you had some other forwards that steamed, you know, and any get the night, you could have had Isaac Howard. You could have, you know, there's a long list and that's how that team is. But the one thing that Frank uh, illustrated from viewing to viewing was the speed and directness that he plays. Like he's a million miles an hour. He's, he plays direct. He plays down the middle. He makes plays in the middle of the ice. Um, he's never one to shy away from playing in traffic and competitive situations. So I just think that along with, as you continue the interview process, you see him in, the physical testing, um, it all came together pretty quickly where this was a, a high-interest level player for us. Um, Mike, I, I wrote a profile on him last year. and I love the player. I love the pick. But my one concern 
was that this player is so mentally driven, so determined that it, it'd be a double-edged sword for him where he's, he's going to be a bit injury prone because he puts himself in bad spots occasionally. Uh, it was something I talked about with some initial scouts. It's something that was discussed during our meetings about the, the potential for injury, and, and it's already here. What is your, what's your comment on, on, on his game in terms of needing to rein it in slightly or to, in order to put himself in, in better positions? Or do you feel that that fearlessness, he can still have that uh, as long as he's still developing physically over time? Well, I, I think the one thing with Frank that we all like and that makes him an attractive player is that he plays every shift, every game, like it's going to be taken away from him tomorrow. Um, and I think that can be contagious uh, throughout a team, throughout a locker room, throughout an organization. Um, and it's certainly how we want to build the character of our team. Um, no one quite knows when or how the injury happened. He played a lot of hockey, um, you know, even as far back as the U18s in Germany, he was dealing with an ankle issue, um, played through that. And then, you know, these kids play so much hockey, they don't get enough rest time. They don't get enough training time when they should. Uh, he went from U18s to the testing at the combine, to our development camp, to the summer USA camp, to going out to Edmonton and then being sent home, to going to Michigan and doing their testing and skating. Um, so I think this might be a blessing in disguise for Frank is that he's been able to get the surgery, been able to rest his body, heal his body. Um, and I, I don't think we'll ever be able to take away his mental makeup. Like this is like, he plays every game, like it's his last. Um, I certainly don't want to, because I, I just think it's an infectious personality to have in the locker room. You know, and it's funny, a few weeks ago, we were talking about Ridley Gregg in, in the similar respect is that sometimes you got to go, you don't have to put yourself into that dangerous spot. Like we, we love what you do, but you have to remember, like when you get to the NHL, those D men are six, three, six, four, 220 pounds. And yes, you know, sooner or later, something may give. So yep. it doesn't mean you want to completely rein them in, but you also want to make them be, have that situational awareness of understand, mm -hmm. like going in like a bulldog head first, we love it. But yeah. right, yeah. there's always repercussions yeah. for being yeah. the bulldog, right? Like yeah. once in a yeah. while, you're going to get a smack for it. Um, yeah. And that's what I mean, I do. And I agree with him, like in terms of that type of mental, emotional attributes is infectious across the group and right. you drag people into the play. Yeah. And, and it's yeah. just really about him recognizing that and becoming more mature in his situational awareness. Understand that, you know. You know, the yeah. team needs to keep me. I got to stay healthy, too. Yeah. And I, and I think that'll play itself out through his experiences going forward. Um, you know, going from a junior schedule, not, not any schedule this year, but to a pro schedule when he's realizing, OK, there's 82 games, there's travel. I got to kind of I got to pick and choose my spots where I can kind of not take a shift off because I don't think that's ever in his mentality. But just OK, maybe it's OK to be the second guy in on the battle sometime instead of the first guy in. So I think that'll play itself out with maturity. He'll get me and Hopefully we have the people around him and, and the older guys at the time and the coaches that kind of guide him through that process. We're going to take a short break on hockey prospect radio. We come back. We'll continue to talk about the Chicago Blackhawks prospects right after these important messages. Uh -huh. 
You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back empowered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're talking about the Chicago Blackhawks prospects with Mike Donahue, the director of amateur scouting. Mike, I want to get your thoughts on Sam Renzel. And it's interesting, both Brad and I talked quite a bit about him coming into his, you know, the NHL draft and talking about, and I said specifically, you know, the challenges of watching kids in high school and then, you know, making that jump to the USHL and he didn't play a ton of games and just how raw he was, but how athletic he was. And, and you try to project him, you know, when he's 23, you know, you're looking at him at this raw 17 year old, but you know, five years down the road, you know, he could end up turning into one of these players that you're just like, why didn't we, like other teams may look and go, why didn't we just take a shot at this kid? So talk, talk a little bit about his, that raw athleticism that he has and the upside that he has, but then you guys be able to give him that long runway for development. There's no reason to rush him. Um, and he doesn't start university until next year. So, you know, he could have three years at Minnesota and then come out as a pro. Yeah. It's, um, you know, the, the thing with, with Sam, and I, I said this in the media scrum after the draft is this is total playing the long game with Sam. Like this, uh, you know, it's, I don't think Sam knows how good Sam can be. Uh, we all know a little bit of the naiveness of, of kids coming out of Minnesota high school hockey. Yes. Um, we talked about that. Yeah, yeah. You and I talked about this and, you know, it, it's, we, we got to see Sam in, I remember it started back in Buffalo at the team USA camp for picking the Ivan Holinka tournament. Um, and at that point he hadn't chosen a school yet. And, you know, I'm talking with Bobby Motzkow was there and Scott Sandlin was there and they're, you know, they're just talking about how raw he was. And at the time, Somebody, one of the coaches were like, I think he could be the best pro prospect here at this camp. Um, and you kind of look at it and you're like, yeah, I could see it because he's six, four and he's got, he's, his skating is high end, high end. Um, Athletic. Oh, it, it's just, it, when you put all the pieces together, so then you watch him at Helenka and he doesn't get a lot of opportunity. Then he goes to, you know, plays in Minnesota high school at Chaska. He, he dominates that. Uh, he goes to the USHL, uh, USA prospect game, and he looked like he was the the last player in line to get the equipment. He, all his equipment was too big on him, everything else, right? And then come to find out he had an appendectomy a week before that. He probably shouldn't even played in the tournament. Uh, I mean, the game, rather. And then, um, then he goes to Waterloo, and Waterloo had an older team. And, you know, but that's why we keep watching, right? So we had Kyle had been able to – Kyle had just been named the GM by the time he got to Waterloo – um, Brian Campbell was working with us. Mark Eaton was working with us. So we had a lot of guys, defensemen who had played in the league, uh, that were able to go in and see him as well as our scouts. And, um, one of the, the great attractions about Sam is, and I don't know, you guys may or may not know this. His brother is the head strength coach for the university of Idaho, um, for football. So, you know, we, we met with the brother as well. We were like, okay, where, where can Sam get? And he said, well, Sam, Sam being 6'4", he was a tight end. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's, yeah. a, that's a tight he, end right there. Yeah, he said if he was a tight end playing football and I had him. He goes, I could get him up to 280 pounds just in over the next red shirt year than the course of the football. 
obviously we don't want Sam 285, right? <laughs> but we're confident enough between the program that they have in Waterloo and the program that they have, that his brother will have him on in the summer, that he's going to, as time goes on, he's going to be able to put on the, not only the necessary weight, but the correct weight to be a successful hockey player. I think the skating, you know, I, I, we saw him at the USH. He had a, he's only in 11th grade, as we know, that's Minnesota tried to get him in earlier. Just the courses and curriculum didn't work out. Um, I'm not, I'm actually very happy that he's back at Waterloo because he's going to play with playoffs. He's going to play another 70 something games. Um, and then by the time he gets to Minnesota, you know, Jackson Lacombe will graduate. Ryan Johnson will graduate. There's going to be a lot of runway for him in Minnesota to play his game. Um, I know they're looking forward to getting them. Um, so yeah, it's, it's the long game and we're excited about it. When you look at him in terms of development curve, I thought when you look at him in high school in his minus one season, and you looked at him towards the end of the season in the USHL, I, I thought his development curve was incredible. Honestly, it was just remarkable how improved he was in terms of getting to what you talked about earlier, recognizing just how good he could be at times. You know, the dominating aspect of them offensively, especially the way he moves laterally across offensive blue line and manipulates it is second to none. Uh, the one question I have for you is that, you know, the one area of concern with, with Sam by the end of the season for myself was that the retrieval rates, his ability to assess under pressure was a bit mixed, was a bit inconsistent. Where are you with him right now in terms of his retrieval rates? And are you feeling that the, the curve's in the right direction? Well, I think the curve is in the right direction. And I think for a lot of those guys, there's such a confidence level because I, I don't know if he never went to Waterloo, you might not have had those concerns about retrieval rates because when he went back in at Chaster and he was going back to get the pucks, he went back and, there wasn't any pressure. He outskated pressure, um, you know, made a quick move and he got up the ice. So there really probably wasn't any issue with retrieval weights rates. Now he goes into Waterloo. Uh, he gets, he gets thrown in the deep end of the pool with a, a bunch of players that have been there all year. And the USHL is a good league, right? And he, he hadn't had that competition. So the good players will realize, okay, I got to go back to that puck and somebody's on my hip right away. I got to be able to make a move uh, or make a play, or I got to have my head on a swivel. So I, I would agree with that. His, his eight-game segment, a 10-game segment, what it was in Waterloo, that, that was a concern. Again, though, it's like when we talked about Kevin Kuczynski earlier in the show, those guys that have the brain and the athleticism that once they recognize it and they're being coached about it so and it becomes second nature to them, I think it's something that they just, lack of better terms, they outgrow it because they get used to going back to do it. So I don't, you know, his, his skating and even in the, the fall classic, you know, the, the way he went back for pucks and was able to retrieve it, transport it, whether by himself or to make a play, um, I thought it, it had high-end capability. We want to ask you about Ryan Green, uh, Boston University freshman. And it's not very often that you get to see a freshman that can produce, you know, pretty much a point a game. Um, it's a rarity, as especially, you know, at that young age and coming out of like Green Bay and the USHL. Talk about his transition from USHL into college hockey. And it's been, I don't like to say the word seamless very often, but in all honesty, it's the best word I can find is it's been pretty seamless for him. It, it has been. And it's, you know, I, 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 I try to live by because we, we witnessed this before my first draft. We drafted Kevin Hayes um, right. and he went right to BC out of Nobles and I don't know if he had eight points his freshman year in college hockey and everybody was like, Oh my God, what a bust. So on and so forth. Now, whether you like Kevin Hayes or not as a player, he just, 
He just signed he, a he seven times into, seven a right. few years ago, right? And sometimes what happens with what like what happened with Kevin, he he kind of woke up and was like, Wow, I'm six five, I can do this for a living, so on and so forth. Um vice versa, Ryan's gone into BU and he's, you know, he's playing behind some pretty good players. Like their top six with Jay O'Brien and Wilmer Skoog uh, and, and Matty Brown, who transferred from Lowell, you know, so he's playing a little bit further down the lineup. So he's not necessarily getting the, the, the top matchups every night. So he's got a little bit more free ice. Uh, but that being said, you still have to make the most of the opportunity you're given. And, and he's been able to do that. And the offense for him has always been there. I think his underage year in Green Bay, he got on the radar and everybody was like, wow, this kid's going to be a player. Um, Green Bay wasn't very good last year. It was basically himself and Cam Lund um, that were the, the two highlight guys every night. And, you know, Ryan was in the middle and, and Cam was on the right wing. Um, so, but it, it, I'm happy to see that it, it's translated and the coaches have done a good job with him. I think you'll see Ryan take another, usually the freshman, after they get that spring workout session in into the summer, they come back their sophomore years and they really take a jump. So I'm, I'm even hoping for bigger things for him. So, do you feel that he you got real value there in the third? You know, I I thought towards the beginning of the season he would he for sure looked like a top two round pick. And then I think because of the slow goal scoring rates, right, coming out of the gate, mm -hmm. he was a bit slow to get going. Yep. Do you feel that that played to your advantage when when it came to acquiring him? Yeah, it, it did. And sometimes I, I don't know. I think there's certain at certain points that sometimes the USHL gets undervalued a little bit. Um, and it's it is a hard league. You know, it's it's a lot different than the CHL in the sense that in the in the USHL that they're all going on to play college hockey and in any given game, there's 40 division one players in a game. And it's just it's fast. Um and so sometimes the numbers, as far as statistically goals and assists, you know, aren't what they might be in, in high school or in the CHL or the Alberta League or the BCHL. Um, and not to mention, I think the coaches are very good in the USHL as well. And so I, I think the times you, you saw Ryan play when he was really going, you could see the offensive package, um, you know, and uh, Shane, you and I talked about it through text the other day, not to mention he's from Newfoundland. Um, which they, they're behind the curve anyway. It's just coming from all the way out east there. And then he gets in that environment there. So I, I think it, it all came together for Ryan and it, it, he's showing it continues to come together. So I, yeah, we, I mean, in the second round, taking him there, I, you know, it's obviously showing to be really good value right now. You uh, guys must be really um, crossing your fingers, hoping that he makes uh, team Canada. Cause that's another great experience for him as well. Mm -hmm. And, and for the Canadians, trust me, we have really good luck when we have a Newfie on the team. We tend to win a lot when we get a Newfie player on the team. So kind of cross our fingers for that. But talk about that opportunity for him, because that may not have like been on his radar, you know, coming out of the, you know, Selects Academy into Green Bay. Yeah, like he went through that process and he was invited to the camp last year. Uh, in, I'm sorry, in, in August, the initial World Junior Camp, not for the Edmonton one, but for this one. Um, and he had a very good showing. Um, he ended the camp, the, the final two scrimmages of the camp, Colton Dock was on the left, Ryan was on the right, and then there was some kid named Adam Fantilli in the middle. Um, so the last yeah, he's two days okay. of camp. Yeah, he's okay. Uh, so the last two days of camp, those, that was the line. So 
Ryan has the ability, um, like we talked about with Frank, Ryan's playing center. Now it'd be you. He played center at Green Bay, but he has the ability to play on the right side and he's got the right shot. He's, he's six, one and a half. So he's got the body. He can skate. Um, but just the experience of this, this process, even if he doesn't make the team and he goes to get on the ice with these players mentally, he's on the ice with, I don't know, 28 of 29 of the best players in the world from a confidence level to know that he can play with those guys. If he doesn't make the team Canada team, I think he'll take another step come January. It'd be you. It's so it's just a, it's a win-win for everybody. Mike, want to thank you very much for coming on our show. We really appreciate the insight of your prospects and safe travels. Thanks Shane. Thanks Brad. We'll uh, talk to you soon. Anything you guys need, I'll be around. That's Mike Donnie, the director of amateur scouting for the Chicago Blackhawks. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by the Power Player, hockey player development software at thepowerplayer.com. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Willis in a regular segment. It's all mental as we continue to review his book, Hockey Grit, Grind in Mind. Dr. Willis, thanks for coming on the show. We always appreciate it. Sure. So we're into chapter six, which is perseverance. And in this topic, it's developmental toughness. Now, this is going to be a topic that everybody sort of sits up and listens listens intently because it's the one, when you say those three words, it's the epitome of what everybody wants a hockey player to have is that mental toughness, particularly because we have, you have to get through the playoffs. And that's yeah. what it requires is, yeah, sure, you can be the biggest guy and the fastest guy, but it's all about mental toughness. So talk about from a clinical standpoint and speaking with your clientele and the experience of, experiences you've had about developing mental toughness and what does that entail and are there some subsections inside of your, you know, you, the different procedures and protocols that you use? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I – at the end of the day, everybody wants mental toughness, right? So that's the cherry on the top. And, 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 and the thing is, we can't go straight to it, right? We've got to go through all of the other things that we've talked about so far in the book to, to be able to say that, yes, I've got toughness. Now, I sort of break it down into, you know, areas of being mentally flexible, right? Mentally responsive, mentally strong and, and, and resilient, right? Those are key aspects. But that just doesn't happen. You know, it's just like any other skill that you learn in hockey. You don't, you don't step out on the ice and have strong edges. You don't, you know, step out on the ice and have good puck handling skills. These are all things that you have to develop over time. And at the end of the day, it's, it's a matter of sort of uh, addressing the fundamentals over and over and in a, in a really smart, positive way so that when I need it, when I have it, um, it's, it's, I'm ready to be able to execute. I'm sorry, guys, my dog ran downstairs. Um, and so at the end of the day, I think for mental toughness, it's about building on all these fundamentals. It's about knowing why, why you're doing this. It's about understanding who you are and being able to check into how I feel and what I'm thinking. It's about having the right mindset, like we talked about before, about, you know, understanding how what I think about, you know, sort of becomes my reality, um, focus, motivation, um, deliberate practice. And so at the end of the day, um, I think 
developing mental toughness is your commitment to do all the fundamentals so that when it is playoff time, that I've got the skills um, to step up and, and be the best version of myself. Kevin, does developing mental toughness uh, come back to the foundation of taking accountability for one's actions? Um, if we look at external locus of control, right? Let's say a player works from the perimeter, decides not to attack the interior of the rink. If a coach asks him, what are you doing? Why aren't you attacking the interior? And his response is, well, the, his teammates didn't allow him or he didn't like how his teammates were setting up in the zone to try to help support him. Is it one of those situations where you look at, you look at that and you say, okay, if, if a player only focuses on the, on, on the external and doesn't, doesn't internalize the fact that he himself is responsible for actually just penetrating the slot area, penetrating those high traffic areas that we would define from a scouting perspective as mental toughness, um, wouldn't that be the, the, the case then that you really do need to have the accountability factor before any of this conversation can even, even begin? Exactly right. Yeah, no, you know, the idea of being accountable, being responsible, and we haven't really talked about leadership at this point, but, you know, to be a leader for others, you have to be a leader for yourself. And that means that you're not pointing the finger at other people saying, no, it's their fault. It's their fault. If, if, if they'll stop doing that, I'll be a better player, right? Oh my God. Think about that statement, right? If they'll stop doing that, I'll be a better player. Think about how much control you're giving to the other people in your world for you to be, you know, at your best. That's ridiculous. And so that that idea that I'm responsible for who I am and what I do, I'm accountable to the people that I do it for. Um, and I think you're spot on. If you aren't willing to be aware of the areas that you need to improve, if you're not willing to accept that I'm not perfect in all areas and that I'm going to get to work and, and, and work harder to become, you know, the person that's playing closer to my full potential, then you never will. You never will. And, and everybody, and you've heard this saying, I know it's cliche, but you know, you're pointing your finger at somebody else. You've got three pointing back at you. And then it's, it's at some point you're going to have to say, no, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen because I've decided that it's going to happen. And, and that's when you see the very best players. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. I'm Shane Malloy with Brad Allen from HockeyProspect.com. Brought to you by The Power Player, hockey player development software at ThePowerPlayer.com. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Willis about his book, Hockey Great Grind and Mind. We're in Chapter 6, uh, talking about developing mental toughness. I actually really appreciate the definition that you use for mental flexibility and it's like the ability to stay calm and centered in the face of adversity stress and emotional turmoil the ability to summon positive emotions in the face of negative ones as i look i i'm an observer of human behavior when there's a lot of chaos going around i'm always curious to see which people when even if there's somebody in in their face is they're able to breathe that's the first thing I look at. Are they breathing? Cause yeah. that's the minute they can, they're breathing then that they're able to summon, like just to like remain calm, regardless of somebody's like spitting venom at them. Um, you know, how do you like, how, how do you relate that back to your clientele, especially when they're a little bit younger and the first response is generally always emotional um, until you actually <laughs> start to learn that, uh, have that sort of mental, emotional, more maturity in, you know, in your headspace. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I think it comes back to expectation, right? When we talk about being flexible, being adaptable, it's about I'm going into this scenario with a certain expectation of how it's going to play out. 
And you know what? It's possible it will, but it's also possible that it doesn't. And so if it does, well, you know what? We're all mentally tough when things are easy. But what happens when things are tough, that's when we need to be able to be flexible and say, okay, so it didn't go like I thought. This is not how I thought it was going to play out. This, these people are not acting the way they should. I didn't get on the team that I should have. You know, this, this whole game is going in a direction that I did not imagine it would. Now, how do we react? And that's, that's when, you know, I think, Shane, you said it earlier, we don't necessarily rise to our, our skill. We sort of fall to our habits. And so becoming mentally tough is your ability to sort of be, to be flexible and adaptable to the situation that's presented and keep moving forward, right? I say that all the time, keep moving forward. The minute you stop, the minute you freeze, the minute you give up, the minute you point the finger and say, but it's their fault, then you lose. And as long as you don't do that, as long as you keep working forward and I'm not promising that the outcome is going to be exactly what you want, but you learn from it and you get better. And then next year you come back and, and you're a better player still. Just speaking of that, Kevin, when, when we're discussing mental toughness, uh, I feel like a byproduct uh, of mental toughness has to be that internalized drive. Um, but the internalized drive, uh, if, if the player is immature, uh, can create the responsiveness that, that swings the, a player in the opposite direction you're looking for it will it there's got to be that healthy mental response from a mature perspective in order for the toughness to be generated is that something uh, that is one of the the foundational components of how of how you perceive uh, strength to be de- mental toughness to be developed yeah well i think the minute you know you mentioned that internal drive i think the minute players start to realize that their their motivation their drive their pursuit of excellence is when it's their choice, they're doing it because they want to, because this is something that they want to pursue. Then, then I see their, their development take off, right? Up until that point, if it's because mom and dad want me to, or coach wants me to, or this sounded like a cool idea a couple of seasons ago, but I'm not sure why I'm still doing it, right? Then it doesn't matter what kind of skill set you have. It doesn't matter sort of what opportunities you have. You're still going to struggle because that, that, the, you don't have gas in the engine to be able to go. But when all of a sudden you look up and say, you know what, I'm doing this because I want it. I'm doing this because I know where I'm going. I'm doing this because I know who I am and what I can become. Now, all of a sudden that internal drive is super, super powerful. And I see these kids really, really take off. Usually it's, you know, 14, 15, 16 is that age where they sort of come into their own and now they're playing because they want to, not because sort of they have always played or mom thought it was a cool idea or dad thought it was a cool idea. or The coach says, I was really good. You should play. Um, I'm doing it because I want to do it. And now you've got a, you've got an elite player in the making. We're going to take a quick break on hockey prospect radio, but we'll be back right after these messages. Did you know you can open upper deck hockey packs any time of the day from anywhere in the world? Well, if you haven't checked out Upper Deck ePack yet, you're really missing out. Open NHL trading cards from your smartphone, tablet, or computer and conduct trades with other collectors all over the world. These are not just digital cards. You can actually store cards for free on Upper Deck ePack and have them shipped to you for a nominal fee. Check out the new wave of collecting at UpperDeckEPack.com. That's Upper Deck, the letter E, and Pack.com. 
Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat stats video editing tools visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information instat the institute of statistics what does every competitive hockey player no matter their age or ability level need from their coaches they need knowledge that'll help them improve in specific areas and they need to know how they're doing power player brings clarity to the development process and helps build stronger relationships and trust between coaches players and parents A feedback platform built around performance evaluation system, PowerPlayer helps coaches provide individualized instruction, performance metrics, and ratings, and comments and video directly to players. Visit thepowerplayer.com today and get in the feedback game. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by the Power Player, hockey player development software at thepowerplayer.com. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Willis. We are reviewing his book, Hockey Grit, Grind, and Mind. We are in Chapter 6, Perseverance. And the subtopic we are discussing now is strengthening willpower. And Dr. Willis, you know, as I read through strengthening willpower, the, the two things that sort of jumped out to me uh, right off the hop was, you know, the, we sort of think of willpower as we often see it as a do or don't proposition when, you know, you can look at it, like think of willpower as the power of yes and the power of no. And those are two drastically different things about do or do not or yes or no, because I think because of that, it puts the emphasis similar to what Brad had said about, you know, it puts the onus and the obligation upon you to make that decision in willpower. It's a yes or no from your perspective, from an internal motivation and not from something that's um, external. Yeah. Well, I mean, the power of yes means, you know, doing the things that you know, you need to do. I I need to do these things. I need to, I need to get up and I need to run early on a, on a hot summer day. I need to, you know, I need to get to the gym every single week. These are, these are the things that you know, you need to do. And I'm willing to say, yes, I'm going to do it, even if I don't feel like it, right? That's where the willpower comes in. The, the no side of it is when we've got bad habits. These are things that we've been doing for a long time. Maybe we love to eat double cheeseburgers and, and we're in training or we've got, you know, some big events coming up and double cheeseburgers do not serve us very well in those situations. So it's your ability to say no to the things that, um, they're not going to not going to help us move forward towards what we want. Again, again, I keep going back to that. It's the foundation of what do you want? 
what are you willing to do? How hard are you willing to work? What are you willing to put up with? Right. And, and that's where that willpower comes in. So if we have never defined it, then in that moment of sort of, yeah, you know, that double cheeseburger does look pretty awesome. Um, if I know what my purpose is, if I know where I'm going and what I'm trying to accomplish, then that willpower is able to sort of ring that bell a little bit louder uh, to say, no, this is probably not the right time for that. Um, and the other thing is the power of want. I think the power of want is one of those things that we don't pay as much attention to because it's, it's a little bit out there, but it's the idea that I'm achieving something. I'm going for something. This is where I want to go. This is what I want to be. And so my willpower is, is, sort of looking into the future, knowing that I will never be that, I'll never achieve that if I don't do the right thing. So it's the power of yes, the power of no, and the power of want. Um, at the end of the day, uh, willpower is like a muscle, um, you know, in the, in the early going or when things are going right, uh, early, early in the day, lots of energy, you know, it's, it's likely that you'll be able to do the right thing, whether it's saying yes to the right thing or saying no to the wrong thing. Um, but as the day goes on, as the, uh, you know, stresses of the day, maybe it's school or work or hockey, or whatever it is that's sort of winding you down, you, that muscle is fatigued. And so now, now in the evening, right, 10 o'clock at night, you're like, oh my God, there's, there's some cold pizza on the stove. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go eat it, but I've got a game tomorrow, right? And an important game tomorrow. How is that going to serve you? And so that willpower muscle, uh, you know, it's, it's weak because it's late in the day and I pretty much used up all my energy. So that's another thing that we have to pay attention to is that, you know, willpower is not a standard from the morning till night. It is a, it's a depleting resource. Uh, and so we got to pay attention to that. Summarize that what you're saying is through the habituation, you can manage your energy expenditure better so that you can then create that the, the effect of being able to rebound and have that mental toughness and that willpower to do the right things um, and to, to basically accommodate uh, and remove doubt, essentially. Is that, is that really the driving yeah. force of how this can come together to materialize? Yeah, well, and you said it, habituation, right? Habit. Habit doesn't require willpower. If it's a habit, then it's happening subconsciously it's happening almost without you having to think about it or consider it uh, and that's what we're going for is really smart habits that that limit the amount of decision making that we have to make should i do this or should i do that right every time i have to make a decision of should i do this or should i do that i am burning willpower i am i'm 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 i have less of it after that decision making process um than than prior and, and that's, you know, even in competition, even in games, we talked about this last week when we were talking about how, you know, negative emotion and things like that burn energy, right? And so in the middle of competition, you might find yourself gassed at the end of the game, not so much because every single shift took everything out of you physically, but because it's a hard game, because I'm constantly thinking and I'm struggling with the coach having a, a hissy fit behind the bench and I'm not getting along with my teammates or whatever negative environment that you're having to deal with that burns energy. But to your point, Brad, habits eliminate the need for willpower. And that's our goal is to build really strong habits that allow us to, to maintain that strength in that willpower so that when there are decisions that we need to make, we're making the right ones. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. I'm Shane Malloy with Brad Allen from HockeyProspect.com, brought to you by PowerPlayer, hockey player development software at ThePowerPlayer.com. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Willis. Uh, wanted to get your thoughts, and how much does this 
like the willpower discussion we're having, how much does that relate to the mental responsiveness and the mental resiliency, you know, as it loops into willpower? Because as I read through, you know, your book that, you know, responsiveness, ability to respond emotionally healthy ways to, you know, handle situations. And then, you know, the ability to quickly recover and bounce back from facing adversity. How much does that get looped into the willpower? Well, think about, you know, being absolutely at your wits end, right? You've had a bad week, you've had a bad practice, you've had a bad game, whatever it is. And now something is, is in front of you that is extremely difficult to get past, whether it's, you know, hockey or just home life or whatever it is, you're going to struggle because you're mentally at a disadvantage, right? So that resilient muscle, that ability to bounce back and endure is going to be compromised. Um, And that's a function of, you know, sort of everything that's led up to that point. So resilience to me is one of the key, I call it bounce. I love the word bounce, um, your ability to sort of take one on the chin and then just, it's almost like nothing happened. You bounce right back and you're right into it. Um, I love watching playoff hockey because there are things that are going on so much behind the scenes, all this other stuff. And the players that, that sort of get upset and sort of hang on to it, they're the ones that are going to struggle late in the game, that second overtime, third overtime. Those are the ones that are either sitting because they couldn't keep up or they're making bad decisions, you know, late, late uh, penalty, second overtime. And now, you know, the other team scores. That's a function of, of mental depletion. And then as far as the responsive stuff, the emotional regulation is is one of those things that I could talk about all day long. I can describe all day long, but until you've had to experience it, until you've actually had to rein it in and get your shit together so that you can, you know, perform like you you need to in this exact moment, um, then you don't really understand what that means. And so it's about repetition. It's about repetition. Just like we said last week, the deliberate practice is about understanding what I need to work on over and over and over, drilling it so much so that it becomes a habit. So guess what? I don't have to think about my response. I just automatically respond and I respond in smart ways. Kevin, speaking to that point, uh, we had uh, saving discussing Chaz Lucius earlier. Chaz Lucius admittedly uh, comes from a wealthy background. If we look to last season's draft, uh, Zaid Wisdom uh, openly discussed how he's financially hoping to be successful in hockey to help support his family because he was not from a financially wealthy background. Uh, my question for you then is, is there a correlation between family income and uh, mental toughness or mental drive? I think there's, you know, everybody has advantages and disadvantages. And I always, when I talk to my guys and if I do like a workshop or something like that, what I always do is I, I, I line them up at, you know, one end of the room and I'll say, take a step forward. If you were born in Canada, you know, take a step forward. If you play in a, in a competitive league, take a step forward. If you've got, you know, a, 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 a ex pro coaching you or something like that. And so I, I go through all these different scenarios. Take a step forward. If you were born in the first half of the year, right. Take a step forward. If you're, you've got a relative that's played pro hockey or pro sports in any way. And so the idea is that there are a lot of advantages and and wealth being one of them that players have to deal with. And all that means is that they get their starting line is just further up than say mine, right. Or mine, I'm further up than theirs. And so where that comes into play is that doesn't mean that you have the advantage. It just means I have some ground to make up. 
we're still playing the same game. We're still in the same race, but I've got some ground to make up. And so if I look at that and say, well, it's not fair, it's not fair. Why do they get to, you know, have a great coach? Why do they get to play in a great league? You know, why are they on that great team? That's, that's not fair. Then I've already lost. Right. But if I look at that gap and say, okay, you're right. You are, you are right. You are ahead of me, but here's what I know is that I am not going to let it up. I'm going to go as hard as I can. And one day you're going to look up and I'm going to be passing you. And that's the attitude that you want to bring into this. And, and if you can't do that, if you're not willing to do that, then, you know, you've already lost you, before the race has even started. You've already lost. Well, Dr. Willis, I want to thank you very much once again for coming on our show. Great insight through your book. And we look forward to speaking to you next week. And for all our guests, uh, Matt Ellis and Mark Yates, uh, Pat Malloy, uh, it's been another edition of Hockey Prospect Radio, and we will see you at the rink. Did you know you can open Upper Deck Hockey Packs any time of the day from anywhere in the world? Well, if you haven't checked out Upper Deck ePack yet, you're really missing out. Open NHL trading cards from your smartphone, tablet, or computer and conduct trades with other collectors all over the world. These are not just digital cards. You can actually store cards for free on Upper Deck ePack and have them shipped to you for a nominal fee. Check out the new wave of collecting at UpperDeckEPack.com. That's Upper Deck, the letter E, and Pack.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat instats video editing tools visit instatsport.com hockey today for more information instat the institute of statistics what does every competitive hockey player no matter their age or ability level need from their coaches they need knowledge that'll help them improve in specific areas and they need to know how they're doing power player brings clarity to the development process and helps build stronger relationships and trust between coaches players and parents a feedback platform built around performance evaluation system, PowerPlayer helps coaches provide individualized instruction, performance metrics, and ratings, and comments and video directly to players. Visit thepowerplayer.com today and get in the feedback game. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca.